podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two footed podcast. Today is Monday, it is the 13th of November, and the storm has passed. The electricity and internet are back on, which is nice, and it's actually quite a nice day, so that's good. Uh, we had another pretty wild weekend in the Premier League with further evidence that you can change the manager, you can change the players, but Spurs will always be Spurs. Beginning the weekend, Tottenham go 1 0 up away to Wolves. Brennan Johnson, Brennan Johnson scores after three minutes after good build-up play down the right involving Kulisevsky and Pedro Poro. Nice finish by Johnson. Spurs looked not in control because, to be fair to Wolves, they looked dangerous on the counter. And Vicario had to make a couple of decent saves. And they had a couple of other good opportunities they didn't get on target. But you felt like Spurs were going to see it out. 
And then on 91 minutes, there's a lovely little ball in from Cunha. Pablo Sarabia, who's come off the bench, the first touch is incredible. The second touch is a brilliant finish. But the first touch, Jesus, Lord wept. That is outrageous technical ability from a player who he's fairly run of the mill. Like he's, he's good. He's decent, but you know, he's not even a starter for Wolves and he scores that level of goal. That's a tremendous goal. No blame really to be apportioned anywhere on that one. But you think, right, Spurs, just get out of here with the draw. You know, you're missing a bunch of players. Just get out of here with a draw. And then there's just defensive calamity. On 97 minutes, the ball is played through. Lamina makes the run. Defenders watch him. Literally watch him and don't track him. And he gets through and first time finish past Vicario and Wolves win 2-1. I would say an undeserved three points overall. The draw was probably the fair result, but massive credit to Wolves. They kept playing until the very end and Spurs did a very Spurs thing at the very end. Um... Manchester United won Luton Town nil. Victor Lindelof with the only goal of the game on 59 minutes. United should have been a couple of goals up. Hoysland missed a good chance. Rashford missed a good chance. That might have been after the goal. But either way, there was one incredible save from Kaminsky from Hoysland from two yards out. He decided to knee it rather than kick it. Questionable decision. Um, Kaminsky does brilliantly. I would say overall, United probably just about edged the game. They had more of the ball. They had more shots. Both sides had four shots on target, though. And Onana had to make one great save from Carlton Morris to keep it at nil-nil. Lindelof took his goal well in a bit of a scramble uh, from a set piece, but it's yet another inconsistency unconvincing performance from Manchester United. Uh, Arsenal 3, Burnley 0. Unconvincing is the word that comes to mind here as well. Uh, Trossard put Arsenal 1 up on the stroke of half time. Really well taken. He's been a very important addition since they got him. And he was one that I said before they got him that they should get. So happy to see that one work out. Uh, Josh Brownhill equalised on 54 minutes. It's just really poor defending from Tomiyasu and Saliba. Really, really poor. Um, Brownhill equalises. His shot is deflected off Gabriel's foot, but nonetheless, it's Brownhill's goal. Three minutes later, Arsenal are back in front. Burnley's set-piece defending is an abomination. And it wasn't just this one. Arsenal had a few where they got... Free headers and free shots, and Burnley's defense is just all over the place. This is so simple. Corner from Arsenal's left as you look up the pitch from the Arsenal goal. Saliba stands behind the goalkeeper, runs into the goal and back out to get in front of the goalkeeper. The corner is literally directed right into the six yard box, and Saliba heads home completely unchallenged from a yard, maybe two yards out. That is abysmal, abysmal defending, but it's a good header from Saliba. It does well to get in the position and then connect with the ball. Um, On 74 minutes, Zinchenko makes a three with a kind of shinned karate kid type of effort from about 16 yards out. It was 
given an awful lot of hype uh, about being a worldie and such, it's very clearly come off his shin um, and looped into the net as opposed to blasting into the net as it would from that technique. Uh, Fabio Vieira was sent off on 83 minutes. Don't think he can have any complaints. It's a fairly poor tackle. Um, 3-1 to Arsenal, but again, they didn't look great. They don't look anywhere close to as free-flowing as they did last year. Part of that, obviously, is the lack of Gabriel Jesus. Odegaard also missing. So, you know, once they get those players back, it should help things significantly. Um, David Raya made a very, very good save in the first half in that game when the when the score was nil-nil. Uh, Crystal Palace 2, Everton 3. Michael Enkel scores on one minute, second time in two games that he scored an early goal for them. Ebrichi Eze equalised on five minutes, a lovely slaloming run into the box. It's a blatant penalty, and he tucks it away. I thought he should have had a second penalty when he made a lovely little run in on the touchline and then cut back to come central. I think his foot gets clipped. The referee didn't and booked him. And VAR took a quick look at it and couldn't find that the referee made a mistake. I think he was fouled, but I could be wrong. Uh, Decoury made it 2-1 to Everton on 49 minutes. The entire Palace defence just fell, to, fell asleep. Just went fast asleep. Very, very poor. Odson Edward scored on 74 minutes after dreadful miscommunication between Pickford and Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky's in a good position to, to head the ball clear. Ducks to let it drop over him. I assuming, I assume he was assuming that Pickford was behind him and Edward managed to get in and finish really well. Um, great first touch, good second touch. Um, but again, the Palace defence just went to sleep and Adrissa Gay scored the winner on 86 minutes. It's just dreadful from Will Hughes. It's absolutely dreadful. There's no excuse for it unless he's injured. And he may have been injured because he was taken off straight away. But it was really, really poor. Had him, had Gay, tracking Gay, and then just ignored him. Started waving at Tyreek Mitchell to, to take him when Mitchell was already marking someone else. Really, really poor from Will Hughes. Disappointing, because he's normally quite diligent in that sort of situation. But, like I said, he was taken off pretty much straight away, so he may well have been carrying a knock and just couldn't make the the recovery run. Biggest shock of the weekend, Bournemouth 2, Newcastle 0, and Bournemouth great value for their win. Over double the amount of shots, double the amount of shots on target, possession was fairly evenly split. Dominic Solanke with the two goals to give Bournemouth their win. And that is a huge pressure lifter for them. It, it looked like with this international break coming up, there might have been some conversations to be had about Iraola. I think this win will do them the world of good. And with the break now, they've time to work on fixing some of the flaws in the team. Was notable that there was a change in the defence. So Barney went right side, Sinisi came in. Aaron's and Kelly stayed, and what it allowed them to do was to to push Aaron's on as a right wing back. Tavernier, who played left wing, was able to drop in as sort of a left wing back. Zabarni, Sinisi, and Kelly formed a back three, with Christie and Cook playing as a double pivot in front of them. Lewis Cook 
on his return from his stupid red card, put in a really good showing. And then you had Semenyo and Clivert sort of in behind Solanke. And it worked really well. And they probably should have won by three. Semenyo made a really nice run, got into a position where he could have shot, but he had a lovely little pass on just five, ten yards maybe to his left to Clivert moving on at pace with nobody near him. And he ignored the pass and took the shot and it was ill-advised and unfortunately led to nothing, but it, that should have been another goal. Uh, the most notable thing about this game from Newcastle, well, two most notable things with this game from Newcastle's point of view, uh, Lewis Miley playing in midfield, he did look a little bit out of his depth, I have to say, but he is a kid, so you give him time. And Kieran Trippier having an argument with his own fans because the fans were griping about the performance level and Trippier was making the point, like, look how many injuries we have and the fans didn't want to hear it. I, I was siding with Trippier. I think, like, when you look at that team, you're missing, of their normal first 11, you're missing Botman, you're missing Dan Byrne, you're missing Isak, you're missing Gameris, who's their best player, but Byrne, Botman and Isak are three of their best, are probably the three best players. And Tonali's also out. So if you look at their bench, Richie, Kraft, Livermento, Ben Parkinson, another kid coming off the bench. Uh, Amadou Diallo's there. Alex Murphy's there. I mean, you've got two goalkeepers taking up spots. Like there's, there really was no option for Newcastle to change things. You've no, um, what's the fellow's name? Callum Wilson. Like it, 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 no Harvey Barnes. It is very much bare bones for the tune at the moment. Struggling to adapt to Champions League, Premier League. Um, but a great win for Bournemouth, and it's, nothing should be taken away from them. Like that is a fantastic win. Aston Villa three, Fulham one. Anthony Robinson with an own goal after good work down the left by, uh, by Villa. Yuri uh, Thielemans starting in that kind of advanced left side role where Zaniolo had been starting. It's it's Aaron Ramsey's position, or Jacob Ramsey's position. Um, but I thought Th- Thielemans did really, really well. I thought there was some lovely link-up play between him, Douglas Louise, and John McGinn. Um, 42 minutes, McGinn makes it 2-0. 64 minutes, Ollie Watkins makes it 3-0. And then on 70, Raul Jimenez gets one back. There's a little lapse in that Villa defence, but... Overall, I just thought Villa played really well. And that, that shape, it's four nominal centre midfielders, but all of them capable of graft. Kamara's brilliant defensively, like genuinely brilliant. He might be, after Rodri, he might be the best pure defensive midfielder in the league, just ahead of Dekure. Basuma, there's a case for, but he's not a pure defensive midfielder. He has been sort of reined back into that, but he does still get forward a fair bit. Now, Kamara, to be fair, found himself in the penalty area a couple of times during the week. Um, Douglas Louise is is not scared of hard work, neither is Yuri Thielemans or John McGinn. So they're just able to outwork teams in midfield. So even though they went in yesterday with a, a 4v5 disadvantage, they outworked Fulham. Jao Polina on the McGinn goal, it's the same issue with the Fernandez goal last weekend. He just overcommits 
to trying to make the block rather than being a little bit more composed and staying on his feet. That's just something to monitor if he keeps that that up because it is a little bit worrying that he's doing that because it's, it's costing his team goals. Um, another shock result came down on the South Coast. On Sunday, just like the one on Saturday, Brighton won, Sheffield United won. Uh, Adingra put Brighton one up on six minutes. This is a belter of a goal. This this kid is is really, really talented. Really, really talented. And the goal is very Matoma-esque. Gorgeous dribble, just balance, movement, speed. Perfect control of the whole situation. Lays it off, gets it back, finishes really well. Brilliant goal. Um, I think Buenanote got the assist on that one, actually. He got an, an um, unexpected start. It was him who got the the assist. He didn't play very well, but he did get his assist. Uh, Mo Dehoud was sent off on 69 minutes, and that changed the game because Brighton had been all over Sheffield United until that point. Um, Dehoud was sent off. It's very similar to the Rashford one in midweek. He's trying to shield the ball. He oversteps it. He steps on the player's ankle. It's a red card, unfortunately. Five minutes later, Adam Webster, who's having an absolute nightmare of a season, and he is he has absolutely fallen off a cliff in the last couple of years. Um, he puts it to his own net. Now, this one's it's tough to blame him. He didn't have a good game. I, I've got some concerns about Brighton right now. They haven't won a league game since September. You look at that team that started, Jason Steele, why? Like, why? Pascal Gross is still playing well. Webster's not playing well at all. Igor hasn't fully settled yet at all and hasn't been impressive. I don't think much of Van Heck. Personally, I, I think he's a liability. Uh, he's good on the ball. The guy can't defend. Billy Gilmore and Mo Dehoud. I mean, you've got Beliba sitting on the bench. Get someone in who can win the ball back. Buenanove on the right, he's been so up and down since joining, and it's been mostly downs, unfortunately, for him. Adam Lalana is an empty shirt unless the game is going really well and everything around him is, is working. Adingra was good. Ansu Fati had a bit of a quiet game. Like, Joe Pedro and Matoma come off the bench. Why aren't they starting? I know they played in midweek, but still, you've got the international break coming up now. Start them. Get the most out of them that you can. Uh, this is a really good point for Sheffield United. Now, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. They they move from 20th to 19th, but maybe that psychological boost of not being bottom and maybe the idea that we've now taken four points from our last two games is something they can bring into the international break, build some confidence off and come back out. I still think Heckenbottom is in trouble. I still think his job will come up for consideration in a board meeting in the next two weeks. But again, he's probably buying himself a little bit of breathing space. When you look at what he's having to work with, like that defense is a joke. Baldock is a wing back. Robinson's a fullback. And Austin Trusty's Denise centre back who's fit to play. Um, I quite like the midfield. I'm not a huge fan of Ollie Norwood, but he's he's solid and reliable. Uh, Vinicius Souza, I like. Bogle, Bogle, I really like. It was his cross that Webster deflected in. And I like Luke Thomas. And you've got uh, Hammer and Archer as two of the front three with McAtee sort of playing an advanced midfield role to join them. I feel like they're probably short on goals, which I think is obvious to say, but, you know, just in the team, you look at that team, 
It's one thing when you've got players that can get you goals that aren't getting them. That team is lining up without the goals, and that's a bit of a concern. And then defensively, they're just not going to be strong enough. But if they can tread water a little bit until January, maybe they get investment into the team and maybe they can turn things around. As it stands, I would have them going down. I think them and Luton will go down. Burnley, I think Burnley will have to make a decision, but we'll come back to that in a sec. Uh, West Ham 3, Forest 2 in quite a good game. Paqueta put West Ham 1 up after 3 minutes. Teo Wani equalised just before half time. Jared Bowen scores on 65 from a Ward-Prowse corner. Alanga, actually, sorry, Alanga had put Forrest 2-1 ahead and then Bowen equalised and then Thomas Suchek with a late header off another Ward-Prowse set-piece. Um, Ward-Prowse not playing very well, but the set-pieces are back and that's a big part of the battle with him. Um, shout out to Nicholas Dominguez. What on earth was that attempted pass? How did you think that was going to clear your teammate not hit him and roll right into the pass of Paqueta? Stupidity. Uh, Liverpool 3, Brentford 0. Very, very professional performance from the Reds. Um, <clears throat> had two goals disallowed, both by Darwin Nunes, both for offside. The first one was very, very close. Second one was obvious. Uh, then they needed Allison to come up big and stop Mbomo in a 1v1 situation. Then Salah scores on 39 after a lovely little layoff by Nunes. Salah scores again on 62 after Costa Simicus does brilliantly to keep the ball in play. And then Diogo Jota scores an outstanding goal to make it 3-0 and give Liverpool what appears a comfortable victory, but was a bit more difficult than the scoreline suggests, but they were a good value for the win. Then we had probably the strangest, weirdest, best but worst game of the season so far. For excitement and drama and goals, this was really good. For defensive perspective, this is an absolute abomination. This was shocking. This was literally some of the worst defensive stuff you'll you'll see all season. Um, Haaland opens the scoring on 25 minutes from the penalty spot. Very questionable penalty. Haaland fouls Kukurea. Kukurea then pulls Haaland's shirt and Haaland falls over. Now, Haaland had been pulling Kukurea's shirt and Kukurea didn't fall. And then somehow the little man managed to pull down the big man. It was it was a blatant dive. Penalties given, Haaland steps up and scores. Four minutes later, Chelsea are equal are, are level. Um, corner from the right-hand side. Ball comes across. Thiago Silva makes quite a long run. And City don't block him off and don't defend the front post well at all. And he heads it across goal and in. Raheem Sterling made it two on 37 minutes. It's more shambolic defending from Manchester City. Then Akanji equalises on 51. It's abysmal defending from Chelsea. Into half time we go. Sorry, did I say 51? I meant 45 plus one. Uh, into half time we go. You think, right, City will get this sorted. They're not going to be this bad throughout. 
Gvardiol won't be as bad second half as he was first half. Ruben Diaz will improve because both of them stank the place up first half and they can't Akanji looked completely lost throughout the game. Um Haaland scores on 47 and you think right that's normal service resumed. They've taken advantage of the gaps in the Chelsea defense and they'll they'll get another and they'll be comfortable here. 67 minutes it's just more shocking defending. Gallagher shoots. I don't know how he has that kind of space. I don't know how he gets into that area with no city challenge. Ball breaks free on the rebound to Nicholas Jackson, and he scores from two yards out. Typical Nicholas Jackson goal. Um, 86 minutes, there's a scrum on the edge of the Chelsea box. Chelsea failed to clear their lines. And Rodri lashes it, takes a deflection off Thiago Silva, wrong foots the goalkeeper and goes in. I mean, right, that's it. Now, there's no way Chelsea are going to get back into this again. They're, they're not going to get a fourth goal because Chelsea are awful going forward. And yet, City, it, it's just comical stuff. Like, it's really, really comical stuff. Broya has the ball. He's on the half turn. He's in a difficult spot to get a shot away because he's got a defender tight to him who should be in position to get a block in. And Ruben Diaz decides to go full John Terry, flings himself across, slides in, wipes out Brohia, penalty given, and up steps Cole Palmer, and he scores. I I don't even know how this game took place the way it did. I don't know how City allowed Chelsea to score four goals. Four dreadful goals from City's perspective. Every one of them is down to really poor defending. Not blocking off Thiago Silva at the set piece not having a man on the line, not having a person defending the front post or, you know, the edge of the six-yard, the corner of the six-yard box. Just let him have a free run and a free header and nobody to block it off. Um, the Sterling one, I mean, God only knows what it is that Gvardiol was doing there. I, that's genuinely atrocious stuff. Um... The the Jackson one, like, first of all, how is it that you're allowing Gallagher to shoot from where he shot from without anybody making a, an attempt to block it off? And then when your goalkeeper makes the save, why is no defender running back in in case of a, of a rebound? Really, really, but like, that's, that's fundamental stuff. That's not even difficult. That's just doing the very basics of your job. And in the fourth one, I mean, I just don't understand what... I don't understand what it is that Ruben Diaz had going through his head as he launched himself into that challenge. Utter, utter stupidity. And, like, don't get me wrong, it's not like Chelsea were good defensively either, but that was shocking. 
for a Manchester City team that going into the weekend had the best defence in the league. From Manchester City defence that is basically four centre-backs and, and Rodri as a, a five-man defensive block. I did think Pep got his team wrong. I thought he should have played just a traditional back four with Rodri and Kovacic in front of them and then either Alvarez or Foden plus Bernardo plus Doku behind Haaland. I, I thought the way he set them up was... It was a little bit disrespectful, to be honest, to go there and think that you're going to play this way, even with your five defenders. Like, you're putting a Kanji in a midfield role and asking him to do that, you know, step into midfield, step back into defence, nonsense that John Stones did quite well last season. But Akanji's not that player. He's not good enough to do that. He's not good. I don't think Akanji's good enough to be starting for City, but that's another matter for the day. Um... Chelsea, to their credit, they showed really good team spirit last yes in that game. Because when they go 2-1 down, because remember, they're 2-1 up and City score right on the brink of half time. That's a blow. And then City score straight away in the second half. That's a huge blow. That could have hurt them. But they, st- they stuck in it and they kept going and they kept trying to get an equaliser. And then they get an equaliser. And a point is going to be a good result. And then they have that deflected goal go in against them late on. And again, heads could have dropped, but they didn't. So huge credit to Pochettino for the way he had them up for that game. League table, Manchester City, 28 points. Everybody's played 12 games now. So everybody's on even footing. City's got 28 points. Liverpool and Arsenal have 27. Liverpool have a superior goal difference. Spurs have 26. Villa 25, United 21, Newcastle 20, Brighton 19. And again, no league wins in September after a great start to the year. West Ham on 17, Chelsea on 16, Brentford on 16. Chelsea's a better goal difference. Uh, Wolves and Palace on 15. Wolves have scored more goals. Their goal difference is the same. Everton on 14, Forest on 13, Fulham on 12, and then Bournemouth 9, Luton 6, Sheffield United 5, and Burnley 4. Four points from 12 games is rough. To be fair, any single-digit tally from 12 games is tough. If you're looking at it through the lens of staying up, does people always say, you know, 40 points. Aim for 40 and you'll stay up. And, and that is true. You get 40, you will stay up. But now 38 is probably going to be enough. So a point a game, basically. But Fulham are at exactly a point a game. But Fulham are exactly a point a game. Bournemouth right now, 0.75 points per game. So what, what are we looking at over the course of the year if you pay, if you, if you play it out as it's going? For Bournemouth, if we do 38 by 0.75, it's 28.5 points. Most seasons, that takes you down. Fortunately for them, 
Luton have 0.5 points per game. Luton are on target for 19 points this season. Burnley, who are bottom, are taking 0.333 points per game. They're on target to take between 12 and 13 points and Sheffield United are on target to take about 15 to 16 points. We have three teams right now through 12 games who are on target to take less than 20 points. That is... That is a new level of pathetic in this league. And, you know, when you consider... Luton, fair enough. Luton came up and built a good championship team because when they go back down, they want to be in a good position to challenge, to come back up. Sheffield United kind of did similar. They sold two of their best players in the summer because they had no choice. They did make some good signings but then they didn't address the other areas of their team. And Burnley, well, they spent all their money on wingers and didn't address areas of need. And all three of them are on target to finish with less than 20 points in the Premier League. Now, in all likelihood, it won't happen. One or maybe even two of them will put together a decent run and finish with, you know, 24 points. But we haven't had a team in this league failing to get a minimum of 20 points since Huddersfield in 1819. And that's one of the worst teams in Premier League history. Right now, we are staring at three of the worst teams the league has ever seen. And to be clear, Bournemouth aren't much better. Because in a lot of seasons, Bournemouth's projected points tally would see them not just relegated, but bottom. And they may well stay up this season based purely on the ineptitude of the others around them. In the last 10 Premier League seasons, only two teams have finished with points below a 20 tally. That Huddersfield team and Villa in 15-16. We have had seasons such as 14-15 where the team that finished bottom got 30. That could be double what two of the teams get this season. 13-14, bottom was also 30 points. The projected points tallies for the bottom four right now get all of them relegated in every Premier League season, ever. If Bournemouth do just get to that tally and stay up with it, it'll be by far the lowest anyone has stayed up with. And they're not the only bad teams in the division. Fulham are not good. Forest are not particularly good. Everton are not good. Palace, I think, can be good when they get everybody fit and back. Great to see Michael Elise back. That's a huge boost for them on top of getting Eze back. So 
you know, they've got ta- they've got a lot of talent. So do Forest. Fulham have some talent. Everton have some talent. Those teams should be better than they are. Wolves are about where I'd expect them to be. Points-wise, not position-wise. They're higher than I thought they'd be position-wise. I'm struck by how many teams are really struggling along this season and being propped up by the fact that we have four bad teams. Like West Ham are ninth, okay? They're mid-table. They've won five games. The bottom four have won five between them. Brighton haven't won a league game since September. They've still won five games. City have won nine. We have four teams who've won eight, including Villa, who I have said all along, I think they will be in the mix for top four. I think they'll fall just short, but I think that they'll be in the mix, and they're in the mix right now. They're only a point behind Spurs, two points behind Arsenal and Liverpool, and three behind Villa. Sorry, three behind um, City. Think back a year to when Gerrard was fired. If I told you then that in 12 months, Aston Villa will be on pace for a 70-plus point season, and will be three points off the top, you'd have laughed. We'd all have laughed. Every one of us would have laughed. But the job Emery has done is brilliant. Ange is doing a great job as well. Back-to-back defeats is tough, but the Chelsea defeat was just madness. Madness ensued, and for whatever reason, he made the decisions he made. Yesterday was just a defensive lapse. Liverpool would be the only unbeaten team in the league and they would be top of the league or joint top of the league, I suppose, if the officials in the Liverpool Spurs game had gotten the decision right and given the Diaz goal. If that goal is scored, it ends 2-2. Liverpool are 28 points and unbeaten. Eight wins, four draws from their 12 games. And Liverpool aren't playing particularly well week in, week out. City, two defeats and a draw already. I think that's quite disappointing for them. So I don't think they'll be overly happy with how things are going, even though they're top. I I think Pep will have a lot of reason for wanting more from his team. Klopp the same. I think Arteta will be the same. Arsenal haven't looked particularly good for most of the season. Um, They're winning games, so credit to them. But they don't look as dynamic or as fluid in attack as they did last season. Of the top 10, let's say, I think only Spurs and Villa will be really happy with how things have gone so far. United's season has been a mess. They've won seven games, though. See, the benefit for United is they're not drawing games. They either win or they lose. 
Now, they still have a negative three goal difference, which is hilarious considering the amount of money they've spent on that attack. And 16 goals conceded in 12 games isn't good either. But they've had a very easy run. Like, they've played the promoted teams. That's three of their wins. They've played Brentford and Forest and come from behind and been very fortunate. They've played Wolves, who are a bottom half team as well. And they've played Fulham. Or they've beaten Fulham. United's wins are all teams in the bottom half of the league. 11th, 12th, 16th, 18th, 19th and 20th. They haven't beaten anybody in the top half yet. Newcastle will not be happy having dropped points in six games so far this year. When we consider last year, they only lost four games in the Premier League. This year, they've already lost, sorry, they lost five games in the Premier League last season. They've already lost four this season. I think West Ham would have been really happy before their recent poor run, but they got back on track at the weekend. So maybe considering last season they were struggling against relegation for large parts of the year, they probably will be happy. So you can add them to the happy list. I don't think Brighton will be happy with their league form because they haven't won since September. Now, overall, they're still top half. They're still an eight. So that's, you know, that's mission accomplished. But I, I still think the standards deserve these sets. I don't think he'll be happy. And there's no way Chelsea are happy to be 10th. Just no way at all. So you've got, I think, three teams, if we're being generous and including West Ham, who'll be happy where their teams sit. Three managers, three boards, whatever you want to say. Liverpool fans should be happy with where they are. The manager won't be happy with some of the results. He won't be happy with some of the performances. And they'll know they've got more to offer. The same is true of City. The same is true of Arsenal. They they know that there's more to come from those teams. They're not getting the full level out of them. But when the top half is like that, and then you look at the bottom half, Brentford, I think, will be happy enough to be mid-table. Wolves will be happy with where they are. Roy will be delighted to be 13th. Everton should be happy with where they are. Forrest, I think, will be happy enough with where they are. But Fulham won't be. And the bottom four should not be. I think most teams will be having quite a bit of reflection in this international break at all the different levels, among the players, among the coaching staffs, and among the boards. I would say most of the managers can feel fairly secure. Obviously, like Pep, Klopp, they're bulletproof. Arteta is is not under any pressure. Ange is new and doing well. Emery's doing an outrageously good job. I think he's the third best manager in the league. Ten Hag should be feeling pressure. But if you just look at the league table and went, oh, the sixth, they're only five points off the top four. But look at who they've beaten. They've lost to every good team they've played and and to some bad ones. Um, I think Eddie Howe will be coming under a bit of pressure. I do. I think the Zerbi's bulletproof. I think Moyes will be under some pressure. Now, I think he probably will last till the end of the season, barring a catastrophe. But I think this is probably his last year there. 
Poch is probably safe enough. Frank is bulletproof. Gary O'Neill will be bulletproof at this point. Palace won't sack Roy ever. Ever. Dyche is is doing a good job at building some job security at a club where there isn't really a whole lot. I think Steve Cooper is fairly close to bulletproof. Marco Silva will be bulletproof. The bottom four. Rob Edwards should be because he's not been given the tools. But Iraola, Hackenbottom and company, I think all their jobs are under consideration. I think they should be. I think those three and Eddie Howe will be being discussed over the next couple of weeks. I think Howe will be fine. But if any of the other three were to be fired, we couldn't really be surprised. And, you know, you, you could say, oh, well, you know, Brent, or Bournemouth just won a game. Yeah, but it's two wins in 12 games. They've got nine points. Like, you're not just judging it on the last game. You don't sack a manager based on one game. You sack them based on 10 to 12 games. And Iraola doesn't have anything before that to back himself up at Bournemouth. Heckenbottom at least can say, well, look, I got you up. Company can do the same. Give me another chance here. He can't really do that. Now, what might stand in his favour is that the board might be a little bit embarrassed if they were to fire him, considering Gary O'Neill is doing quite a good job at Wolves. And people will just say, well, why did you fire Gary O'Neill? And they already had to answer those questions once. Don't think they want to answer them again. So that might stand in his stead. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if in one of the next two weeks we get our first managerial change. In the Premier League history, there's only been, I think, 11 seasons in which a manager hasn't been fired by this point. And five of them, in five of those seasons, a manager was sacked in this month. Another one or maybe two was definitely December, early December. So this is the type of time where managers do get fired. So don't be surprised if we get a change in the next in the next two weeks. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do news and gossip. It's a bit of a short one today, I think, because I just had a, such a strange day with all this weather and electricity and internet and whatever else going on. So, um, yeah, back after this. Right, welcome back. So, uh, on to the news. And we have England news. Uh, Esri Konza, Cole Palmer and Rico Lewis have been called up to the England squad. Uh, yet another slap to the face of Raheem Sterling, who really and truly should be one of only five players whose starting position in the England team is nailed on, uh, along with Harry Kane as the nine, Jude as the ten, Saka right wing, Sterling should be left wing, and then your fifth would be Declan Rice in one of the two midfield roles. Everybody else's position in that team can be questioned because at right back, you've got a lot of options. At left back, you've got multiple options and no standout. There's no standout centre-back. Mark Wehi is the best of the bunch and he's had a couple of shaky games recently. Um, the I partner for him, probably for Kyle Tomori, would be the best in terms of form and performance level but neither of them will start. Obviously, John Stones will start, but 
I mean, the guy doesn't play. He's always hurt. I think Nick Pope is England's best goalkeeper when he's not keeper, and I don't even think it's close, and he's not in the squad. I'm really not sure what Rico Lewis has done to warrant a call-up to the England squad. Um, he's certainly a talented player, but that's a nonsense. Cole Palmer being called up over Raheem is a nonsense. And Esri Kahn's, I think, is a good call-up. Esri Kahn's has been called up to replace Lewis Dunk, who has stepped out of the squad. So did Callum Wilson. And so did James Madison. Um, Palmer for Madison is, is the replacement. Lewis, I don't know who he's coming for. And like he's another right back. And they've already got three right backs in the squad in Trent, Trippier and Walker. So I'm not sure why Rico Lewis has been called up. Um, crowds have gathered today for the funeral procession of Bobby Charlton which is taking place in Manchester. So uh, if you're around that way and you're paying your respects, I hope everything goes off without any issues. Uh, Scotland have had to call up Lawrence Shankland to replace Che Adams. Adams had to withdraw from the squad to face Georgia and Norway. Shankland, who plays for Hearts, has scored five goals in his last five games and he has been called into the squad. Cesc Fabregas has taken his first step into management. He has been appointed interim manager of Italian side Como. Um, He obviously joined Como last season to see out his career, wanted to play in Italy and, and see how it would go for him. Also wanted to take the first steps into his coaching. And... Played 17 games, retired, and was coaching their youth and reserve teams. And now he has been fast-tracked into the manager's job. Obviously, Como's club president is Dennis Wise, former Chelsea midfielder, most notably former Wimbledon midfielder, um, and, and also a former director of football at Newcastle, where he did not do particularly well. Um, I think he did he manage... Did he manage the FA Cup final, I think? Dennis Wise. Dennis Wise definitely managed somebody and did a decent job. Millwall. Dennis Wise managed Millwall, did a pre- pretty decent job, did not do well at Southampton, didn't do well at Swindon, did okay at Leeds and then didn't do okay at Leeds. Um, yeah. Part of the Wimbledon team that won the FA Cup in 88, which is why I said he's most notably, even though he spent longer and had more success at Chelsea. For me, I always think of him uh, in that Wimbledon team. Um, yeah, he was a director at Newcastle for a number of years, well, for two or three years. And now he's been with Como and apparently doing a decent job. I'm not sure how things are going for them in their current season in Serie B. Uh, they currently sit seventh. So a little bit of a little bit of a strange one that they've made a decision to sack the manager at this stage of the season. Doesn't look like things had been going dreadfully. They're seventh, but they're only two points off third which would put them into the promotion playoff semifinals. 
Um, I know the aim is always in that division because it's, it's a bit messy with the promotion. You want to get top two and get automatic rather than, you know, where they are now, they'd have to win a preliminary round, then win a semi-final and then play a final against the team and then play a final. And then they'd have, would they have to play a team coming down? I, I, I think so. I think they'd have to play another team coming down. So it's all a bit messy, but I mean, right now, yeah, they sit seventh. It doesn't look like things have gone dreadfully in any way, shape, or form. They've lost twice away from home, once at home. Cremonese beat them. They're above them in the league. Uh, Ascoli and Citadella beat them. Citadella just outside. Ascoli, you'd say, is a poor result because they're currently 16th. But that's the seemingly bad result they look to have had. Um, Draws with Barry and Pisa away from home. A draw with Reggiana at home. Reggiana mid-table. Pisa mid-table. And Barry are mid-table. So, like, no... No outrageously bad results. It's not like they're Sampdoria, who are currently sitting 14th. It's not like they're them. But, you know, decision was made, and Sesk is the new manager. So best of luck to him. I, I hope I hope they get a chance to watch some of his team play, because I'd like to see Izzy instilling a brand of football similar to what we're seeing from some of the other kind of Spanish midfielders of his era, like Xavi, and obviously Xavi Alonso. And speaking of Alonso, uh, Bayer Leverkusen won again at the weekend, beating Ber- Union Berlin 4-0. Uh, Alex Grimaldo's having an unbelievable season. Nathan Teller was on the score sheet there as well. Um, they've taken 31 points from 33 available in the league this season, which matches the record set by Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich in the 15-16 season, which is an incredible start. And they're just about a third of the way through the season, obviously 34 games in a Bundesliga campaign. And even with that great start, they're only two points ahead of Bayern. Like, that league is is very, very frustrating because Leverkusen are literally one game away from perfection through 11 games. And they didn't even lose that game. They drew it. And they're still only two points clear. And Leverkusen or Bayern have a significantly better goal difference. Like, that's going to feel like they're being hunted down until Bayern go above them. And then all that hard work. And it's not not for nothing because they'll still get, hopefully, a Champions League spot. But you would hope that the aim is to win the title. And it's a fun team. There's a lot of good players in that squad. Um, I mean, defensively, you've got Kasuna, you've got Hincapia, you've got Tapsapa, who's out at the moment. Uh, you've got Frimpong, Grimaldo might be the most exciting wing-back pairing anywhere in Europe. Ezekiel Palacios is great. Florian Wirtz is, is maybe the best player of his age in Europe. Uh, Victor Boniface has been great coming since coming in. You've got Tella, you've got Adley, you've got Hlasek, you've got Mbamba. You've got Amiri, you've got Andrich, there's Stanisic, there's a lot of good players. Then you've got that kind of spine of of experience in Hradecki, Ta, Xhaka and Hoffman, who, to the credit, have all played well this season. Um, 
what is the greatest African 11? This is part of the BBC Sounds series. Yaya Toure, Efana Koku and Gabriel Zucani. Uh, former Congo international. I don't know him, to be fair. Um, make the, If all three of them don't have Mo Salah in their team, then that's just a complete waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. He He's the greatest African player that's ever lived. Um, I, I know that George Weah won a Ballon d'Or and no other African player has, but George Weah didn't play at the same time as Lionel Messi. Um, Kilmarnock aimed to have grass pitch for the 25-26 season. So they're replacing their artificial pitch. Looks like they're doing quite a bit here. Kilmarnock are aiming to revert to a grass pitch at Rugby Park for the start of the 25-26 season. Major shareholder Billy Bowie hopes final planning approval for their Bowie Park training facility will be granted so work can begin in the spring. Kilmarnock hope their women's team will be based there by the end of the year. The centre will have two full-size pitches, a training complex, a 250 stand, and be the Youth Academy's home as well as Kilmarnock's home. Fair play. Good to see investment in infrastructure at different levels. Um, the main man, Gareth Crooks, has done his team of the week, so let's have a quick laugh at that. Uh, he's picked Allison. Yeah, no issue. Uh, there's a couple of other goalkeepers did well. Onana, like I mentioned earlier on, had a pretty good game. Neto back in the team at Bournemouth made a couple of good saves. But I think Allison for sure. <clears throat> Van Dyke was the best centre back in the league this weekend. He's picked Lindelof, Saliba, and Michaelenko. All of them scored. He's ignored the fact that all of them also played parts in badly. Well, other, no, Lindelof did not. He kept a clean sheet. But Saliba was dreadful for the Burnley goal. And Michaelenko didn't cover himself in glory at all stages defensively in that game against Palace. In midfield, he's picked Sarabia, S- uh, Suchek. Dukure and McGinn, again, because they all scored. And in attack, he's picked Salah, Solanke and Palmer, again, because they all scored. I bet he didn't watch one single game this weekend, other than maybe Spurs versus Wolves, because he's a Spurs fan. That's a shocker of a team. That's an absolute abomination. Like, McGinn wasn't Villa's best midfielder on the day. Douglas Luiz played better than him. Yuri Thielemans played better than him. And Bubakar Kamara is always better than him. Dukure wasn't Everton's best midfielder on the day, let alone the best midfielder on the park. Suchek had, I thought, a fairly poor game until he scored. And Sarabia came off the bench. Scored a great goal. But certainly not team of the week worthy. Of the back three and midfield four, as he has it set up, I'll accept Lindelof on the basis United kept a clean sheet. All of the rest of them are awful choices. Um, Cole Palmer has no business there. None at all. None at all. Not even a little bit of business. Garth Crooks, what an idiot. What an absolute cabbage. Um, Right, let's do the gossip. Uh, we'll have a bunch of days worth three. So we'll run through that and we'll get ourselves wrapped up. Uh, we will go back to Saturday's 
to begin. Now, bear in mind, some of this will be repetitive and some of this will be outdated, but it is what it is. <clears throat> Real Madrid may decide to trigger 23-year-old Erling Haaland's Manchester City release clause when it comes into play next summer, which is believed to be about 200 million euro. Interesting. Once his 25% takeover of Manchester United is complete, so Jim Ratcliffe will look to sell Anthony Martial, fair, Jaden Sancho, fair enough, and Anthony. You might find the manager will be a little bit upset if you try and sell Anthony on him. Though he's not getting in the team at the moment, and United do look a little bit better. Uh, United could move for Kylian Mbappe. They won't. And if they did, he would laugh. Real Madrid remains Mbappe's most likely destination should he leave PSG, but the Spanish side will face competition from several English clubs, including Man City, Newcastle, Chelsea, and Liverpool. Um, Yeah, I can't imagine, to be honest. Radcliffe wants to know how Manchester United have blown 1.4 billion in the transfer market, but he believes Eric Ten Hag still has credit in the bank. Nonsense story. Manchester United could move for Lucas Paqueta, who manager Pep Guardiola sees as a successor to Kevin De Bruyne. I don't think he does. I think he sees him more as a successor to Bernardo, and Bernardo will be finally allowed to leave. Barcelona are leading the race to sign Gabriel Moscardo of Corinthians ahead of Chelsea. Um, Oh, and Arsenal. I think Barca would be a good fit for him. He'd fit how they play. They need a long-term six. He's very young, but he's super, super high potential. David De Gea is open to joining Real Betis on a short-term contract. That's fair enough. That's a good move for him. Liverpool are preparing a move for Archie Gray, who could cost more than £40 million. He wouldn't cost more than £40 million because he only has 18 months left in his contract. Uh, despite seeing centre-back options reduced, Tottenham cannot recall Joe Roden from his season-long loan spell at least. Well, that's just poor from Spurs not to put a, a recall into the contract. Neymar could be deregistered by Al-Halal after the 31-year-old was ruled out for the season with injury. That would make sense. Bayern Munich are set to win the race to sign 17-year-old Australian winger Nestori Iran Kunda from A-League side Adelaide United. You've probably seen clips of that kid scoring absolute worldies. Uh, seeming to have the most powerful shot of any player ever to play the game. Newcastle are monitoring Lille's 23-year-old Thiago Jallo. He's he's good. I, I thought he'd be better by now, but he would make sense for how they play. West Ham are interested in Victor Boniface. I, West Ham, I don't think, could afford Victor Boniface, to be honest. Um, while the Hammers are also considering David Moyes' position, then another story says... Moyes is expected to see out his West Ham contract, which runs out next summer. Uh, Fulham are preparing to heavily back Marco Silva in the January transfer market. That's that's very positive. Chelsea signed Cole Palmer after missing out on Jeremy Doku and Michael Elise. I think everybody knew that already. I think that's a story. Uh, Liverpool agreed to sign Doku from Anderlecht when he was 15, but he chose instead to sign an extension with the Belgian club because they guaranteed him first-team football and Liverpool couldn't at the time. Maurizio Pochettino will not have influence in the club's transfer activity in January. I honestly don't think they should do anything in January, personally. I think they should play the season out with what they have 
and let Pochettino figure out what he actually needs. Obviously a striker. Obviously a goalkeeper. I think that's probably it. I think you'd be better off waiting until the summer to try and get them. Um, Frank Lampard has emerged as the leading candidate to take over at Oxford United. I hope that happens. I really do. I think going down to League One, swallowing his ego and going down and learning how to be a manager would be a good thing for Frank. Football's lawmakers have begun talks over major changes to how video assistant referees operate and semi-automated offside could be introduced to the Premier League next season. The offside that we saw in the World Cup, that's what we need. That is what we need. Uh, Into Sunday, Calvin Phillips is leaning towards a loan move to Newcastle over Juventus in January. Fair. Borussia Dortmund midfielder Julian Brand is wanted by Arsenal and Newcastle. I have doubts that that's true. Uh, Chelsea are planning talks with Nottingham Forest to resolve the future of Andre Santos who is on loan with Steve Cooper's side, but has only featured once in the Premier League. What do you think was going to happen you loan them to a team that's probably going to be battling to stay in the division? They're not going to play a 19-year-old kid, especially one that they don't own. Andre Ayew has joined La Harve after leaving Nottingham Forest at the end of last season. Great. Congrats to him. Congrats to them. Fantastic. Hope it works out well for everybody. Uh, Al Itahad are in advanced talks with Julian Lopetegui, according to Ben Jacobs, who, as we know, is a spoofer and a danger. Uh, Arsenal have made Aston Villa's 25-year-old Brazilian midfielder Douglas Luiz a primary target. I don't believe that to be true. The Gunners want to unload Thomas Partey. I bet they do. But his tie injury means he may remain with the club. He is definitely remaining with the club. He's going nowhere. Girona are keen to re-sign Ariel Romeo from Barcelona. And Barcelona should be keen to allow him to go there. Uh, Again, Lampard to Oxford. And Manchester United are interested in 18-year-old Dutch forward Jaden Adai of Azel Alkmaar. Um, I don't know that a young, another young forward is what United need. I think perhaps they'd be a little bit better off if they focused in on buying a more experienced forward to mentor Hoyland, like perhaps Taremi, who's been linked. I think that would make a lot more sense. And then on to Sundays. Uh, Manchester City are interested in Reese James as a long-term replacement for Kyle Walker. I don't believe a single word of that at all. Uh, Saudi Pro League clubs are willing to pay €100 million for Bruno Fernandes. I wouldn't be surprised if Bruno was interested, to be completely honest. Uh, Liverpool would have to pay up to £30 million for Lloyd Kelly. No, they wouldn't. I don't, don't even think they've got any interest. Uh, Bayern, Munich remain, uh, Bayern Munich defender Alfonso Davies remains a summer target for Real Madrid. Inter Milan are interested in Borussia Mönchengladbach's Swiss forward Winsley Botelli, who is also a target for Everton. Everton do not need another forward. Um... Liverpool have sent scouts to watch Leeds on multiple times to follow Archie Gray. Spanish winger Nico Williams does not want to leave Athletic Bilbao and will renew his contract with the Spanish club. Well, if he's going to renew his contract, he'd want to do it soon because he's been dragging this out now for nearly 18 months. And come the 1st of January, which is what, seven weeks away? 
he can sign a free agent deal with another club. Barcelona are interested in signing Wilfred Ndidi. I'm not sure he has the technical level to play for Barcelona, if I'm honest. <laughs> and I'm a big Ndidi fan. <clears throat> Hatafe want to extend Mason Greenwood's loan stay for Manchester United. Really? You want to continue to do this to the reputation of your club and make yourselves more unpopular than you already are? Doesn't seem like the smartest of moves. Uh, three goals in ten games. It's not like he's lighting the place up either. So Jim Radcliffe is interested in bringing Swedish midfielder Ronnie Bartley. Ah, just nonsense. Nonsense. Just because he scored a goal against United during the week. Uh, Radcliffe is closing in on his deal to, to buy 25% of United. Napoli are set to sack Rudy Garcia with Igor Tudor, Fabio Cannavaro and Walter Mazzari, the possible options to replace him. They're all awful, awful options. Cannavaro is not a good manager. Mazzari was there once, didn't do well. Tudor, I just don't like the football he plays. I don't think he's consistent enough. Um, Chelsea are looking to sign a forward in January. That's just easy stuff to write. And who, who knows? Pep Guardiola says he would never block one of his players moving to a rival, which could pave the way for Calvin Phillips to join Liverpool or Newcastle. I, I would take Calvin Phillips in January, to be honest. Arsenal could be set to offer Emile Smith-Rowe in a player-plus cash deal with Aston Villa for Douglas Suisse. Now, I don't believe the story about Douglas Suisse, but it, it could be true. If Villa are smart, they will get Emile Smith-Rowe back in that deal. Because if they can line up with Emile Smith-Rowe on the right and Jacob Ramsey on the left of that box midfield with Kamara plus one in a double pivot, it could be Tielemans, uh, or they could go and buy somebody, that would be a great outcome. A great, great outcome. Emile Smith-Rowe would fit that system perfectly. I really like the idea of Emile Smith-Rowe on that Aston Villa team. Right, that'll do us for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow to work around the dogs. Tomorrow the dogs have vet appointments, but we'll work around it. We'll have something up tomorrow. So take care of yourselves and speak to you then. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.